I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and irregular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts, an irregular warfare podcast, the show that examines the mythos, loss history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of irregular warfare. Today, I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill Bubert. Welcome to Episode 7 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare Podcast. Today I'll be doing a book review of John Gentile's book, Wrong Turn, America's Deadly Embrace of Counterinsurgency. A few housekeeping notes. Happy belated holidays to all my listeners. This is the new year. Happy New Year. And uh, we had a great time. I may sound like I've smoked two or three packs of cigarettes, which I haven't in my lifetime. But uh, I've come down with whatever the new flu is that's been pervasive throughout America the past uh, few months. So here we are. So if my voice is a bit different, that is the reason for that. I had a holiday pause on my fortnightly schedule. You'll notice we slipped by a week. I would planned that. I do intend on sticking to my fortnightly schedule where every two weeks you will receive a new episode of Chasing Ghost, and every two weeks you will receive a new episode of, I wouldn't call it a companion podcast, but my other podcast called The Dash, a Stoicism podcast, which is going to be every other fortnight. I also wanted to thank all of my listeners for some negative feedback, but a lot of positive feedback that I've gotten from you guys through correspondence. Uh, That correspondence, of course, is where you write me, cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me. Love to hear from you guys. So a few notes on my book review, since this is going to be my first book review. Not only will I entertain what the book has communicated to me, my nature of the author, what it's all about, I will also sort of span high, wide, and deep maybe with other books, reflections on what the author has written in the past, and also some contraventions with the author. For instance, with Colonel John Gentile, who I hold to be one of my colleagues as a Cointra instead of a Coindonista, is that he comes out in support of the Ukraine conflict, oddly enough. And I'll read about... Towards the end of this podcast, I will read some of his comments that were published concerning that, which seems to be a bit of cognitive dissonance on his part with the entire great um, case that he put forward in his very brief book, which could be a booklet. It's 144 pages, less footnotes, but his footnotes are wonderful. And he also seems to have dug into both primary and secondary source archives to include archives in Great Britain and archives in America. So bully for him for taking the time to do that and really doing his homework. I will be quoting his book extensively because I don't want to put words in uh, Colonel Gentile's mouth. And I think he makes uh, some terrific points in here. And this this book is a terrific, terrific introduction to the counterinsurgency myth and the larger irregular warfare myths that suspend themselves to the left and right of Bang in this entire enterprise. What I discover that's really interesting about all of this is that 
While I draw significantly from what I consider the seminal work on this subject, Douglas Porch's book on counterinsurgency, which I will be doing a review on in the future, isn't as accessible. It's very thorough. It's very deep. It's very wide. It's very on occasion turgid, but I wouldn't say entirely so. Certainly not like T.E. Lawrence's book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. But nonetheless, I wouldn't find it as accessible to some of my listeners who may not have a military background or may be new to discussions of the irregular warfare continuum. So this, I would suggest, and this is one of the reasons this is my first book review, in 144 pages, he makes a very significant, cogent, and compelling case on why counterinsurgency in this case is so wrong-fitting for America and so disastrous in future consequences, both intended and unintended. And his book comes with the endorsement of three of my favorite authors, and that would be Andrew J. Basevich, Martin Van Creveld, and Colin Gray, the last of whom, and you'll be hearing from all of these folks in the future, and I'll probably quote from them in the future. What you'll find with Colin Gray is I think that he is probably one of the most sound, strategic, grand strategic thinkers that we have had in the past 50 years. The guy is a prolific author, and there's plenty of books out there. And my strategic and grand strategic mentors and coaches in the book world have been Edward Lutvak and Colonel John Boyd. I put Colin Gray there in this trio in that with these three folks, if I use them as the fount in the well from which I divine sound strategic thinking, I find myself in a good place. So a couple more notes on uh, John Gentile. Like I mentioned, uh, he seemed to have spent a lot of time in the archives. I really appreciate his pursuit of primary source materials. And he brought up a peccadillo and a concern of mine. He said, due to non-universal record-keeping mechanisms and obsolete computer drives and thinking things like that, this could cause significant archival and bibliographical gaps in our understanding of history and trying to grok history in order to better understand our future. Uh, this is something that, and it is, it is not the center of gravity for the, this entire episode. It's always concerned me. I mean, I think I have audience members who are probably old enough to recall that there were three and a half inch floppies. There were five and a quarter inch floppies. There were uh, reel to reel tape modalities. There were microfish, hard microfish. All this stuff decays over time. I've heard that being a CD collector myself is that even CDs decay over time, simply being in a place in which it is non-humid and the t it's temperature controlled, still they tend to degrade over time. Uh, there's probably engineering experts out there. I'm a systems engineer, and I do have an engineering background, but there are probably engineering experts out there as far as audio engineers and things like that who could probably provide a better explanation for that. But I'm simply pointing out that that is a cause for concern for present historians and future historians. Bird Colonel John Gentile apparently is retired from the U.S. Army now. He is a commentator. You will see him with his bow tie giving his uh, lectures and opinions on various things. I find him to be a great conversationalist. He's very good in questions and answers. 
He seems to have a very solid foundation. And sometimes what I do is I look at past works that authors have done and maybe how that past work has influenced where they are now. Which brings me to a book that he did on strategic bombing before this one. Now, I am opposed to strategic bombing of any type, even with PGMs, except in surgical strikes, in which we have triangulated, verified through many sources that whatever we're trying to neutralize or liquidate happens to be there, less all the collateral damage and casualties that may be the case. When I look at World War II, for instance, I find that a lot of our strategic bombing campaigns in Europe and Japan on the part of the U.S. allies, U.S. and its allies, was uh, morally suspect at best and uh, morally unjustified at worst. So I remember reading about this gentleman named Robert Pape, who wrote two books, Cutting the Fuse and Dying to Win. And when I was an irregular warfare senior advisor, I made... One of those books, Cutting the Fuse, required reading for the young officers that I was coaching, mentoring, and teaching at the time. And he's the one who came to some very interesting conclusions about this. And I thought, if anyone studies this in depth from an epistemological, empirical, and even a mathematical perspective, you discover that most of the time, as Pape concluded in his 90% in the Middle East of those who participate in homicide bombing, suicide bombing, however you wish to characterize that, tended to be people who were not only indigenous, but they were fighting against occupying forces from the West. Could be occupying forces from Middle Eastern allies, such as what the Saudi Arabians are doing in the three little civil wars in Yemen. But nonetheless, you discover that when you peel this onion back... They're not drug-addled, they're not religious zealots, they're nothing of the kind. For the most part, accepting left and right outliers, people who commit V-beds, vehicle-borne IEDs, use IEDs, these kind of things, they are using that as part of the, for instance, with V-beds and uh, other kind of IEDs. They're employing the ancient notion of mind warfare with a more sophisticated technology toolbox. Same thing goes for suicide bombers, homicide bombers. For the most part, you discover that these people are doing it because they are trying to take a shot and uh, take out some of the invaders of their country in an occupation. At the conclusion of this podcast, I will talk about some of the cognitive dissonance that I think John Gentile is suffering from in some of his latest observations on the Ukraine conflict. Now, as I mentioned, it's a brief book. You could do this in an evening or an afternoon or two days, depending on your reading speed. Uh, Thin, almost pamphlet-like, a large pamphlet, of course, 144 pages. I don't have a beef with that, by the way. Uh, In episode two of The Dash, my Stoicism podcast, one of my big problems with the publishing world is that We could fill massive landfills with all the management texts that are out there. I mean, you name what it is that says it's going to make you a miracle manager or, you know, whatever GM does or SpaceX does or whatever. And they'll spend 300 pages, 400 pages to tell you what they could have told you in three pages. So I really appreciate the fact that this is sort of like a very compressed guidebook 
that lays down not only the historical antecedents to the counterinsurgency warfare that culminated in the 2006 publication of Petraeus and Friends' Counterinsurgency Manual that was widely regarded by many, and I think falsely, as the be-all and end-all of modern counterinsurgency efforts, especially when, through Porch, through Gentile and others, they forensically investigated what were the origins of this. Well, they go back to the British, they go back to the French, they go back to a number of folks who are not only suspect, but their history ends up not being as correct as they made it out to be. Now, confession on my part, when I was teaching my young officers as the Irregular Warfare Senior Advisor and Instructor at a school here in the United States, I took John Nagel's book, Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife, which is, of course, stealing a very pithy quote from T.E. Lawrence, talking about counterinsurgency and how America should adopt British methodologies and some French methodologies and a deeper historical understanding to make counterinsurgency more effective, more efficient, and more of a way of war for the expanding number of coin avocations and vocations that America has taken up on the menu. Because, of course, in spite of having simply Iraq and Afghanistan, we have Libya, we have the Horn of Africa, we have Syria, and we have another a number of other expansions to include uh, robust support to Yemen and such, and all leading to robust policy failures and warfighting failures. Fortunately, Gentile takes a very credible chainsaw to all of these notions to include Nagel's book, Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife. So I've got his book in my hand here. I just wanted to read the table of contents because that's always helpful. So his first chapter is The Construction of the Counterinsurgency Narrative. Second chapter is Malaya, The Foundation of the Counterinsurgency Narrative. Third chapter is Vietnam, The First Better War That Wasn't. Four is Iraq, A Better War, Version 2. Five is Afghanistan, Another Better War That Wasn't. And an afterword, Truth as a Casualty of Coin. Now, does a great job here. What, what I really dig about what Gentile has done with this book is he lays the foundational baseline of, well, where did we come from? Because we all know that if you don't know where you've been, you can't possibly know where you are. Instantiated where we are, which is conducting these wars worldwide that seem to always end in defeat, well, what's the patient zero? What's, what's the, uh, what caused all of this dysfunction and ineffectiveness in spite of hailing folks like General Petraeus as the second coming of counterinsurgency success, which of course we know on reflection, it has not been. Gentile writes in a crisp, clear, authoritative manner. He backs up his assertions, which I really appreciate. And he has um, a lot of great quotes, selections, and throughout the book, he builds his case very consistently by not only giving us a snapshot of the Iraq and Afghan wars at the beginning and the end of the book, but in between he's saying, well, what is it that informed that 2006 adoption of the counterinsurgency doctrine that became so wildly popular among the allies? And I think um, disastrously so, because it was not a notion that lent itself to reality. 
So let me quote Gentile here. Quote, there are many reasons why the story of the Iraq surge and General Petraeus's application of coin simply doesn't hold up to scrutiny. The story depends heavily on historical precedent, on other stories of other wars at different and distant places. The coin argument is a blend of some history, a lot of myth, and suppositions about roads not taken as analysts today imagine what might have been if different strategic decisions had been made in the past. Coin depends on a narrow and selective few of histories that are messy and complicated. Revisiting those histories and all their messiness is essential for understanding why coin has failed and will continue to fail as an American way of war. Until we do so, the explanation of these wars will be dominated by writers who conform their stories uncritically to the narrative. End of quote. I have made mention in the past that I will not be invited by the Irregular Warfare Institute at West Point, nor the Small Wars Journal to either talk, write, offer my opinions, because they're not interested in the opinions of either myself, Porch, Gentile, Austin Bay, and a number of other skeptics of the counterinsurgency and in larger frame, irregular warfare efforts of the West in the past 50, if not 100 years. Again, quote, from Malaya, the story traveled to Vietnam. A British colonial officer during the Malayan emergency, Sir Robert Thompson, thought that the British model for defeating communist insurgents in Malaya in the 50s could be applied directly to fighting the Viet Cong insurgents in the jungles of South Vietnam in the early 1960s. And he told the South Vietnamese president, No Dinh Diem, as much. Thompson saw no significant differences between Malaya and Vietnam. The enemy, he noted, was exactly the same, end of quote. And we all know how corrupt the DM regime was in South Vietnam, which in large measure led to the defeat of American arms and coalition arms in that, that uh, particular war. So what he's basically laying the groundwork for here, and it says construction of the counterinsurgency narrative, I like that. What he's saying is that, well, what is it that informed this 2006 doctrinal change, this field manual change? where we adopted Petraeus's and company field manual on counterinsurgency. And, and he literally wrote the book on it. And this is what all of our forces followed, much to their chagrin. That FM is 3-24 if you want to get a copy of it. I think if you go to the Army Publications uh, Directorate, you could probably get a free copy in PDF if you wish to download it, if they still allow it. If I were the U.S. Army, I would not only have deep six that document, but I wouldn't let anybody access it. But nonetheless, and I wanted to uh, quote this because I think this is vital. Quote, the term counterinsurgency came into use by the American military in the late 1950s because of the American army's discomfort with the label used in the French and British armies, counter-revolutionary warfare. In the Cold War context, given America's own revolutionary heritage, it became a matter of political and social sensitivity to reframe these kinds of military operations as counterinsurgency, end of quote. And that's because counterinsurgency in the American Argo and the Allied Argo in this day and age is anti-guerrilla warfare, guerrilla being either the indigenous or allied indigenous or auxiliary forces or near-adjacent or far-adjacent guerrillas who join within a nation-state or a variety of nation-states, as I delineated in the uh, Terms of Endearment podcast I did in episode one, where I tried to give you guys a taxonomical toolbox 
to divine how these conflicts emerge. Because I want to repeat something that I said there. When you decant these counterinsurgencies, when you start to do this, what you are doing is you are unleashing, unlimbering, and unboxing many hostilities that were on a slow simmer, maybe approaching a boil, and you are letting them out of Pandora's box, and then they have all of their interrelated nonsense and and uh, vectors that permeate throughout the culture of either the country or contiguous countries or countries involved in all of these conflicts. I emphasize again, in the nearly two years that I spent in Afghanistan, I was quickly disabused by the notion that if I were an American and I simply landed from Mars after being on a two-year sojourn, and somebody said, well, who's causing all the trouble in Afghanistan? The instant answer to the American public via the government organizations is, it's the Taliban. The Taliban were one of many, maybe dozens of major, hundreds of minor, guerrilla and partisan operations going on in Afghanistan well before our invasion in 2001 and decanted as a result of the operations we started conducting in 2001 and giving them free play and free reign to conduct violent hostility. I've mentioned before and I mention again, Bill, how do you conduct a counterinsurgency? My number one reasoning is don't get involved in counterinsurgency in the first place because you are tossing yourself into a fiscal policy and moral briar patch from which you will not emerge the same entity you went in as. And what you will do is you will unleash all of these smaller contingent and adjacent brush fires that have been going on, and it will become a conflagration as we've seen in both Iraq and Afghanistan. I want to quote Gentile here again, quote, Hearts and Minds Counterinsurgency has become the primary operational instrument in the Army's repertoire for dealing with insurgency instability throughout the war. Since the golden rule of American counterinsurgency is that local populations must be protected so that they can be won over to the side of the government and separated from the insurgents, America has been led down a one-way street in its efforts to combat local insurgencies, long-term nation-building. The surge in Iraq, led by General Petraeus, seemed to make it all workable even potentially doable elsewhere. Even in the wake of this disastrous war and the parallel quagmire in Afghanistan, pundits and writers still see a bright future for more counterinsurgency operations in foreign lands. End of quote. Gods help us. Gentile makes a critical point at the conclusion of this chapter on the construction of the counterinsurgency narrative. Quote, the coin mystique surrounded Stanley McChrystal's entrance into command in Afghanistan in spring 2009. But the story on which the current practice of coin depends is not supported by evidence. It is a myth. From this flawed narrative, we end up with the simplistic idea that the United States can intervene militarily to rebuild entire societies if the tactics are just right and the right general is put in charge. It is a recipe for perpetual war. A better understanding of the flawed historical narrative of counterinsurgency warfare one that exposes the fallacy that counterinsurgency and armed state building actually worked in practice in Malaya, Vietnam, and Iraq, and is currently working in Afghanistan, might lead to a way out of this nightmare. End of quote. Gentile doesn't go to the extent, nor does he take it to the figurative and literal notions that I do. Here's how I sum this up in a couple sentences. When you park a Western deep state Death Star over a given victim or host country, Afghanistan, Iraq, 
Libya, the Horn of Africa, Syria, you name where it is. And all of a sudden, especially with Islamic nations, for instance, and you try to instantiate in those nations cultural IQs that they don't know, languages that you don't understand, more mores and morals that you don't understand, codes of honor that you don't understand, and you try to apply Western templates to them, you are going to get resistance. Now, this is a rough number, but I would guess that, especially in Islamic nations, when they are subject to occupation after invasion by Western forces or even by fellow Islamists, as we see with the Saudi Arabian Sunni occupation and war in Yemen of what is basically a member of the Shia triangle in uh, the Middle East, it turns into disaster. And we don't seem to have the means to examine and step back and say, what's our progress so far? Every year in Afghanistan and Iraq, we had a new general officer standing athwart the country, four stars adorned, saying, I've got this, hands on his hips with all the confidence in the world. And we all knew what would happen at the end of his year, at the end of his tenure, nothing would be different and everything would be worse. Gentile uses the British experience in Malaya, which had a probably disproportionate impact on the crafting of the counterinsurgency manual and the Koindanista hierarchy in the West, especially in America from both martial academia and the Pentagon and the joint forces and a variety of them. But what we discover is that early on, primary source documentation by examining the archives discovered that in the communist exploitation of a guerrilla organization and guerrilla activities in Malaya proper as part of the British military, British, um, what I like to call the barbed wire empire in the 1950s. Why do I call it the barbed wire empire? Because concentration camps were a very large part of Sir Gerard Templar's alleged success in quelling the communist insurgency in Malaya. What we discover, though, through the archives, and Gentile brings us out, is that the communists knew very early on that absent sucker and support within Malaya proper and because of the way the British had configured themselves in the hierarchy and the bureaucracy of Malaya, the ability to have a communist coup de main in Malaya would probably be impossible, and they gave up the ghost early on. And I quote, But other writers and observers of the Malaya scene at the time were aware of the primary cause for the improved situation. Arlington Kennard, a British writer for the Malaya Strait Times, who had spent many years in Malaya and had written often about the emergency, shrilly noted in May 1954 that the perception with the British public that things had gotten better because of General Templar was an illusion. The improvement in the overall situation had much more to do with the effects of Templar's predecessors and the impl implementation of the Briggs Plan, argued Kennard. He ended up by pointing out that the Malayan communists should get a large part of the credit since, in October 1951, they issued a directive that ordered their fighters to stand down and reduce attacks. Another writer for the Straits Times, Alex Jossi, criticized a recent article in the British magazine, The Economist, for giving the credit to Templar for saving Malay in 1952. As Jossi testily noted, I wish I could say this in great British accent and argo, but I can't. 
Quote, unfortunately, in this connection, the magazine makes no mention whatsoever the notorious directive sent out by the Malayan Communist Party just before Sir Henry Gurney's murder. This document is of considerable importance because it was, in fact, an admission that communist terrorism in Malaya had failed, that the Malaya communists had reached this conclusion before General Templar had assumed office in Malaysia. And it was General Templar who has been given all the credit for not only besting the, quote, Malaya emergency, end of quote, but his counterinsurgency practices should be emulated by others worldwide. Hence, why we have such an anglophiliac attraction to the Western counterinsurgency conducted by the British. But when one decants it and takes a look at it very closely, you discover that the barbed wire empire is all that it set out to be in this mythos. Now keep in mind that Gentile has made a, um, a very interesting observation here. He said that there were a lot of figures to include Galula with French counterinsurgency and Malaya and Oman and other British influences in counterinsurgency that even influenced some of the counterinsurgency narratives that the Americans and their allies would practice in Vietnam. To quote, he says, For nearly two generations, American military analysts and Americans generally have struggled to come to terms with the meaning and implications of the United States' defeat in Vietnam. The significance of this protracted debate, which has played out in academic journals, the media, and the American military, cannot be overstated, for it bears directly on how American policymakers and military planners have come to think about the projection of U.S. military power in distant parts of the world. The standard critique of American military involvement in Vietnam, which began to emerge while the war was being fought and came into full force shortly after America's loss, was that the war was unwinnable, and American strategy should have discerned this basic truth. The eminent diplomatic historian George Herring summed up the interpretation best when he wrote that the Vietnam War was unwinnable at a moral or material cost most Americans deemed acceptable. End of quote. Now, there are many out there who have this contention that the Vietnam War could have been won and that we lost in the political sphere. We bought, lost in the mass communication sphere. We lost at the strategic level, but not at the tactical level. We lost at the operational level, but we didn't lose at the tactical level. Whatever the variation is, what it means is that, and you will hear me state this again and again throughout this podcast series, the more women and children and male civilians that you maim and kill, the stronger and stronger the resistance organizations, and by the way, the variety of the resistance organizations, both in-country and adjacent countries, such as Laos and Cambodia, that were supporting either side of the, uh, the, um, of the conflict. Again, Gentile makes a really good case here, where he says, quote, But unless the United States was willing to stay in Vietnam for generations to do armed nation-building, again, here we see the motif of nation-building as a necessary concomitant effort to conducting counterinsurgency. The collapse of South Vietnam was inevitable. In the end, firepower could not break the will of the North Vietnamese, the NLF, or the PLAF, nor could it correct the endemic problems of corruption, witness Diem, as I mentioned earlier, within the South Vietnamese government and military. Moreover, it could not, could not connect in a moral and long-lasting way the people of South Vietnam to the government. 
The United States and South Vietnam lost the war on all fronts. The proof was clear enough with NVA tanks rolling down the streets of Saigon in late April 1975. For the United States, the essential lesson from Vietnam is that the crucial elements in war are not smarter counterinsurgency tactics, better generals, or more malleable popular support, but clear-headed thinking about policy and strategy that aligns ways, means, and ends relative to national interests and the potential of our enemies. In Vietnam, the United States failed at that test. Now, end of quote. Now, they failed at that test on a variety of ways. From a technocratic perspective, McNamara failed the test in a very large way. From a diplomatic perspective, it was, it was a failure from the beginning. From a corruption perspective, it was a failure from the beginning, and none of that was remedied by whoever took office in South Vietnam. The Vietnamization from 72 to 75 of the forces where the United States and allied forces were trying to step off stage left or stage right and allow the Vietnamese themselves in South Vietnam to take over the war effort, too little, too late, ineffective, impossible. How could we have fared better in Vietnam? Don't go there in the first place. His next chapters start to deal, deal with uh, more contemporaneous subjects, in this case, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, in, in Chapter 4, Iraq, A Better War, Version 2, he has some terrific observations in here about why things were such a bloody mess there. For instance, he says, and I quote, Another shift was the notion that the new strategy would focus on providing protection to the Iraqi population. Petraeus himself pushed the line of analysis in early January 2007, saying to newly appointed Secretary of Defense Robert Gates that if he took the job as commander in Iraq, the general wanted the main operational emphasis to be the security of the Iraqi people. End of quote, because I want to intervene here with, with one slight observation, and that's this. When you talk about the security of the Iraqi people, but you're an occupying force, and you're delivering night letters, and you're kicking doors in, and you have high-value target lists or even medium-value target lists, that number in the hundreds, if not thousands, and you have Abu Ghraib, and you have prisoner interrogations, and you have people who end up in Cuba who are there because of their age and their martial affiliation, but has nothing to do with being members of any resistance organization whatsoever, this does not encourage the population to trust the occupiers. So we go back. Quote, in fact, the American military in Iraq prior to Petraeus' arrival was intensely engaged in establishing that. Any combat commander on the ground in 2006 would have acknowledged that for reconciliation to proceed and for the Iraqis to assume security responsibilities, sectarian violence had to be quelled and the population protected. My personal card, which I handed out to Iraqis in my area of operations in 2006, this is Colonel Gentile speaking as a brigade commander, clearly stated that my squadron, as a squadron commander, my squadron's purpose was to provide security and protection to the people of Western Baghdad, and that is precisely what most of my operations focused on, end of quote. It's just a horrific enterprise across the board, especially with the entire lack of understanding of the culture that they were dealing with. For instance, you discover that after George Bush declares success in Iraq, there was no plan whatsoever 
once the invasion had sort of stopped and consolidation was starting to take place, there was no plan whatsoever for what to do with Iraq after Saddam Hussein was relieved of his office. Now, that's martial malpractice. It's uh, political malpractice, Department of State malpractice. It's whole-of-government malpractice and not being able to extrapolate and extend into the future what those possible branches and sequels were, what those possible contingencies were. What was it that you were trying to achieve in the end? As a matter of fact, I sp- as I mentioned, I had spent some time in Afghanistan. What you discover is that try to find the end state at the strategic or grand strategic level. For instance, it's uh, pretty plain vanilla to say something like this, quote, we are trying to ensure that Iraq and or Afghanistan achieve a security posture that is not injurious to the West and may be either neutral or beneficial to Western interests. Well, what does that mean? What, what are your what are your objectives and key results that you would template over time as you march forward to fruition of the end state objective of, of which we have no end state objective? His next chapter is on Afghanistan, another better war that wasn't. He has an interesting quote here from the father of a victim of an IED attack in the Dasht-e-Shur area of Mazar-e-Sharif in the Balkh province in July 20th, 2011. I happened to spend almost a year in Mazar-e-Sharif near the Uzbeki border in 2015. Quote, I heard the explosion of around 11.45 in the morning. A few minutes later, my wife called my mobile phone. She was very upset and difficult to understand. She told me that my 14-year-old son had been buying ice at the scene when the detonation occurred. She told me she could see his blood on the road, but did not know where he was. I went to the hospital. After some time searching among the injured and the dead, I found his body. A piece of shrapnel had gone through his head. I passed out and was taken home by friends. My son is dead. And his loss is killing me and my wife. He was the only son I had. End of quote. No matter how academic the subject, no matter how much we may preen and pose about moral issues and moral injury, and it all comes down to this. You have an impact on families. And here's an observation I want to make about Afghanistan, Iraq, and the general Middle East. When you wage these wars... And when you injure parties you didn't intend to, those injured parties aren't one family because you can have as many as four generations living in one home. And you have people with many children, many grandchildren. That injury that is imposed upon that house is a besmirchment of the honor code, whether that be Islamic or regional based, whatever the case may be. And all of the blood-related men and husbands, for that matter, who have had an injury imposed on them by the U.S. or the Allies, whether intentional or not, he has no choice to retain his manhood and honor not to remedy that in one fashion or another. There is no greater way to steal the spine and increase the ranks of resistance forces than the main activities of counterinsurgency, despite what they say about being people-oriented, which is that they go after young men, and after going after the young men, they find that there are collateral casualties, as was 
distinguished in this quote here. The rest, as I say, is history. I also want to note for my listeners, if you guys need a, because I haven't set up my website yet, if you guys need recommended reading or book list in addition to this book review on Afghanistan, on Iraq, whatever the case may be, be sure to write me and let me know. I can send you something. I do want to note that every war comes out with a spirited or essential novel, a work of fiction that really drills down and and teases out all of the factors that make it not only a martial enterprise, but a human enterprise. So I would tell you, and I can never read this book without a dry eye. There's a book called Tattoo Zoo by Paul Avalon, and it is the martial opus in fiction for the war in Afghanistan. Tattoo Zoo by Paul Avalon. All right, another quote here from Gentile. Quote, The myth that coin works is catnip for advocates of U.S. intervention overseas because it promises the possibility of successful, better wars. American counterinsurgency has developed a language all of its own, and because of the faith in the myth that it works, the language rings in people's ears as factual truth. When generals, colonels, and policymakers say that they are providing security to a local population, or in a place like Afghanistan to protect and serve the Afghan people. Many people have come to hear such utterances as accurate statements, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. But saying the U.S. Army is providing security in Afghanistan, as if security were some kind of physical commodity that can be divvied out when the Army is doing counterinsurgency correctly, does not mean that is what is actually happening. End of quote. And he says, quote, If American combat soldiers in Afghanistan can see through the myth of coin, it is time for the American people and especially policymakers to see it too. Sir Michael Howard, the eminent military historian decorated World War II combat veteran, says that it is the historian's duty to shine light on things that are not compatible with myth. Quote, and I love this quote. To do so is necessary, he argues, not simply to conform to the values which the war was fought, but to preserve military efficiency for the future. All right, so that's it. John Gentile just did a terrific book here, and I highly recommend it. Uh, it would make a, a great gift for friends who may be on the fence or not skeptics themselves to inform them the other side of the coin. Gentile published that book in 2013. And then I find myself disappointed with the author. And this is something that we have to contend with with a lot of folks. What you'll discover is that while there are skeptics of counterinsurgency, those same skeptics of counterinsurgency may not be skeptical either of the application thereof in new venues or have different opinions when it comes to conventional warfare. Fast forward to this past month. As a matter of fact, January 7th, 2023, and we have right, quote, that is exactly what Fred Kagan, the AEI neoconservative who helped to craft the Iraq war surge plan, said in this lengthy National Review piece in 2008, entitled Why Iraq Matters, talking back to anti-war party, in which he deployed this fatuous bromide. Americans have a right to be weary of this conflict and desire to bring it to an end. But before we choose the easier, more comfortable wrong over the harder, more distasteful right, 
we should examine more closely the two core assumptions that underlie the current anti-war arguments, that we must lose this war because we cannot win it at any acceptable cost, and that it will be better to lose than to continue trying to win. Wow. Quote, which makes this all very ironic since Colonel John Genta was one of the few brave souls in the active duty military who were openly speaking out against Fred Kagan's surge and the counterinsurgency craze that was rocking the blob during the period. He was an arch critic of Washington's hypermessage management and selective history machinations. It is head scratching that he would oversimplify the effects of public opinion on recent wars and suggest its relative unimportance while offering the thinnest of arguments for, in essence, staying the course. Quote from Gentile, the leaders of the free world need to remind their publics what is at stake in Ukraine, not just for European and global security, but for democracy at large. Gentile's Ukraine fatigue myth article is elite thinking, which reads as a pep talk for Beltway insiders in the wake of recent polling. For the rest of us, it is a cogent reminder that the same people who did not want regular Americans to actually think about foreign policy during the Iraq war are still out there, whether they want to call themselves elites or I pulled that for the website Responsible Statecraft. For instance, I find the cognitive dissonance that Gentile exhibits there rather puzzling and head-scratching. But then again, Anne Applebaum, a left-of-center writer at the Atlantic magazine, which used to be good but is no longer good in my opinion, she wrote probably one of the best histories of the Soviet gulags there is and still finds herself left of center and a champion of foreign intervention planet-wide. Again, leaves me head-scratching. So that concludes this episode, episode 7, a review of John Gentile's book, Wrong Turn. I appreciate you indulging me with my uh, rather wretched voice as a result of having gone through the new flu this past month. I would urge you to join me again for follow-on episodes that I hope to issue fortnightly. If you have any comments, questions, constructive criticism, or maybe even nasty bromides to send my way, you can send those to cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. This is Bill, out.